The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. On today's show, we have a conversation with Zebediah Hall, Director of Student Disability Services. During our conversation, we dive into the topic of ableism and its impact on the Cornell community. We also talk about why disability and intersectionality should be a key part of how we intentionally design spaces and experiences here at Cornell. My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Zebediah, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the show today. So before we start the show, before we start our conversation, as we always do with every episode, we ask our guests to share their name, their pronouns, where they work here at the university, if you want to share maybe how long you've been here, and then we'll take it from there. Zebediah Hall, he, him pronouns. I'm the director of Student Disability Services, and I've been here a little bit over a year and a half, kind of going on two years, somewhere in there. Well, congratulations. Uh, Toril and I are actually just marking our two years as well here at Cornell, so. Yeah, two years in, in my current role, but I've been with the university for eight, almost eight years now. Wow, yeah, I did forget uh, no. about that. Thanks for that, <laughs> <Yeah>. Toril. <laughs> All right, so we start every show with a question of the day. And so the question of the day that I'm going to ask you is, well, for all of us to answer, so Toral doesn't know this, you know, it's always either me or Toral and we keep it secret, is how would you advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion with colleagues or coworkers who don't understand its importance? So it's a heavy question. Yep. Take a minute to process it if you need to. Yeah. I because I do the podcasts, I also oversee the Inclusive Excellence Network. I would redirect them to Mary Opperman's episode that we did. We actually asked her this question and I thought her response was really insightful and in that she really talked about this collective piece and how here at Cornell as a collective of people who work here at the institution that use the core values as well as the mission statement as kind of our guiding principle for why diversity, equity, and inclusion matters. So I would just redirect them to listen to that episode and or read the transcript because now we also have transcripts for all of our episodes on the series. So talking about inclusivity, accessibility. Yes, I had to throw that in there. So for me, it's uh, I really kind of take on in my position the role of like I would say educating one person at a time, right? And so you might or might not be aware, but I receive and manage all of the bias reports that involve faculty and staff. And so it's it's one conversation at a time is kind of the approach that I take. And as we go through the bias incidents, it's really breaking that down. We really talk a lot about intent versus impact. So I think it's just that one accountability conversation at a time is just kind of how I, how I approach it. I appreciate that. Now, mesh a little bit of both of you guys' answers together, if that's okay. Of course. Uh, I hear a little bit on a case-by-case basis, which I think is always important because you need to meet everybody where they're at. I also heard a little bit about guiding principles and those kind of things. And when I think about the kind of work, I think about it from a standpoint of the environmental context. I think about it from the standpoint that Cornell is a microcosm of society. 
if you're connecting it to the work that I do, I'm looking at the environment, I'm looking at the negative attitudes, I'm looking at the policies, the procedures, the process that deny people access and opportunity to participate fully. And so when you're starting to look at it from that standpoint, I think you're looking at it and I'm starting to look at it from an access standpoint and access comes in many forms is what I would say. Yeah, it's actually a perfect segue into our first question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, more details about what you do here at Cornell? Yeah, so we're charged with access and opportunity so our disabled community can participate fully so we can equal the playing field. When I think about the work, I think about it from the standpoint when students have to come to my office to receive accommodations, I need to do a better job. That means the environment that I spoke about a little while ago is not getting it because a student needs to come to my office to receive accommodations because they don't have access from the onset. And so it's a little bit of engaging on that case-by-case basis because there's going to be a certain level sometimes where there's some nuances where students might need accommodations, even if we try our hardest to be as universal design, universal design as learning as possible. So there's a level that you still might need some accommodations, but there are some things that you see repeatedly that starts to happen that you wonder sometimes, are there things we can put in place from a redesign standpoint that gives individual access and opportunity to participate without having to engage and say, I have a disability and these are the accommodations I need so they can have access and opportunity to participate. What sparked your interest in this type of work? Uh, oppression, I think. Mm-hmm. At the core of it, uh, as you keep hearing me engage, you're going to hear me say disabled people. It's owning the political, the environmental, all those kind of structures to be of oppression, like other marginalized identities, understanding that it affects all of us, understanding that COVID has made it so prevalent to bring to bear some of the disparities that we already know that's at play. And understanding my oppression of, as a Black man, understanding the oppression of the disabled community, it keeps me highly connected. And it's about the oppression and how do you unpack that and deconstruct ableism. And then the intersectionality of ableism with other identities make you start to unpack it in a very different way and understand healthcare disparities and all those other things that feed into some of these other aspects. Zebediah, I love your answer. And I think you you talked a lot about ableism, intersectionality. These are all really core concepts when we're talking about not just disability work, but also diversity, equity, and inclusion across the board. So I just want to go back to something you mentioned about disabled people. And I've heard a lot of conversations around people first language, which is leading with people first, not necessarily their ability or disability rather. So I'm just curious, what's the most inclusive way to speak about the disabled community? What I would say is, first of all, not using euphemisms. So I think about Mm. euphemisms, they might talk about the identities that we hold in this space right now. So the first thing is not using euphemisms and then owning, like I talked about a little bit, the political, the economic. I think so much we're taught to do person first identity. I think about myself and I'll preface this by saying it's not monolithic, but I say I'm a black male, so I'm not disconnecting myself. That's a male that happens to be black. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're saying people with disabilities, we're disconnect, we're separating a little bit. The reason we might do that is a little bit of that devaluing of disabled people, how they devalue my blackness sometimes, depending on the social construct. And so it's really owning that and putting it back on the environment. And if 
the way that we do the work, we think about it that a disabled person is not disabled unless the environment produces barriers that deny them access and opportunity. And so it's owning that it's the environment that disables. If I was to build a building right now and it hit a second and third floor, no elevator, escalator, or stairs, we all became disabled to that space to access that opportunity. It has nothing to do with it. And so when we say disabled, it's making the environment own their role within the political landscape, economic landscape, and the social construct of that oppression. I love that. I'm learning something new. Thank you so much yes. for that. And I also want to touch upon what you talked about around intersectionality and what does that intersection look like with disability, disability work, disability justice, and diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because I do feel like it's one that people don't typically put together, especially doing this work. And it's something that I know for me, I continue to learn and grow from every day. Just wanting to get a little bit more of your insight on that intersection of what does that look like? How about I do some identity connecting and some real stories to see how it actually plays out and manifests. And then we'll go back and talk about it a little bit. I think about it sometimes when we're engaging at a predominantly white institution. And we just talked about my blackness, how in certain social construct that could be looked at as negative and devalued. Then when we say that we have a disabled individual and they don't have access, by not giving access, we might be saying you're a second class citizen. And so now those two things might be prevalent, okay? And so now you're operating with a disabled person that didn't have access. I'm now operating as a black person in a predominantly white institution. And now I also might be a woman. And so are we saying that there might be three strikes against me because I'm a woman, disabled, black, right? Because the social construct of the devaluing of all three of those identities. And now you connect those identities, not that disabled, not that woman, not that black. None of those identities should be devalued. But since those things are devalued in certain spaces, when you have the intersectionality of that, it makes it tough. So the way that might manifest is it might be a woman of color that needs accommodations, but not seeking them because what are they going to think about me? Do I not cut the mustard at this Ivy League institution, those kind of things. And so those are always prevalent when we're talking about intersectionality. Let me give you another story of how intersectionality might play out. Take that same three identities. And you put that individual in the space where that individual professor might be a white male. What I first started to talk about was disabled and disability. Say that I put a diagnosis of PTSD or something of the sort where the identity of that whiteness might connect back to something that happened to that individual in the past of why they have PTSD. That male in their whiteness might not be bad at the core but that identity in the spaces that we're in, as that being an authority figure, as the faculty member and governance of this class might be a barrier for that individual because that's a white male that might have caused the PTSD within that black woman that might be disabled or have a diagnosis, prognosis of the sort. And that's how this can play out and manifest in so many different ways. Uh, and that's why it's so important to understand our identities, because the only way we can truly unpack this is understand who we are as people. I can tell you how it shows up sometimes for me. There are times where women who have eating disorders don't want to connect with me as Zebediah, the male. Has nothing to do with my blackness as much as it has to do with my maleness. 
right? If I don't understand how my identity show up, I might not be able to service the community appropriately. And so the reason intersectionality is important is because is my identities of who I am not given access to the disabled community, to the services they need, because I'm not recognizing my identities and what I bring forth and the barriers that those might hold. I didn't talk specifically about intersection that well, I did, but I didn't, I might not have answered it in the way that you wanted. So I hope. No, no. I mean, when I ask these questions, it's however, however it makes sense to you, because I also think it might make sense to other people the way exactly you just explained it. And I know yeah. the way you did it for me, like it resonated with me because I definitely understand through real life examples. And I even thought of me like too. specific people that could fit those identities that you mentioned. So it, for me, it made sense. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. Examples work better for me too. Zabadaya, earlier you mentioned the word ableism, right? And so for our listeners that don't know what that means, would you be able to define that for us and then really speak to how it shows up at Cornell? When I think about ableism, I think about disability oppression, oppression of the disabled community. I think it's in favor of able-bodied people. I think even when we think about able-bodied, we're not even sometimes missing the concept of non-visible. And I think that's also at play. When I think about ableism, I try to think about it from the impact that it has because the impact varies in so many different ways. And so if I think about ableism from a microaggression standpoint, I think about the secondary gain sometimes people feel that they can get because they gave somebody access to something they should already had access to and they want to pat themselves on the back, Mm -hmm. right? I think about the spread effect sometimes that shows up from our faculty members, because if I accommodate this one student like this, every student's going to want it, right? That's the spread effect, right? Mm -hmm. But COVID showed us a real spread effect, right? Like, let's be clear on these kind of topics. And so it's those kind of things when I'm starting to think about ableism, I'm thinking about the denial of identity. If I have to say I have a disability to receive an accommodation, my identity must be revealed process that a little bit, right? As we're engaging, as we're doing this at a high level for our disabled community and we raise ableism at its highest. I think it's also important to know from a historical context, free slaves, prostitutes, I'm saying prostitutes because that's what it was back in the 1880s to be sex workers now. People that spoke English as a second language, which newsflash European brothers and sisters, your native tongue sometimes wasn't English, they labeled you as disabled. I think those things are really important to see, not because disabled was bad, but that category back in the 1880s was considered disabled because they considered those individuals to be bad and devaluing who those were individuals. And so if we connect that back to our present day and the things that are going on, if we're not careful, we're labeling people for the wrong reasons, not because it's that individual's fault, because our design itself And so one way to think about ableism is to think about design. And there are times where you might go into a situation where because our geographical location and region within where we live with Ithaca, those kind of things, our campus with the hills, the waterfalls, all those kind of things that are also gorgeous and beautiful and all those things, but it also poses certain barriers. So when you go in certain buildings right now, and sometimes you just have older buildings, you might go into that building. You say, what does it look like sometimes at Cornell? You go into that building and that individual in the motorized scooter can't get up to a certain floor because it's only stairs. So an individual might say, we give accommodation. So we go down and we meet those individuals down below, which is fine, that is good. But you can redesign your process altogether 
And by redesign your process altogether, you say, we're going to meet everybody down in that space. So now you took care of that individual in the motorized scooter, and now that it feels more equitable. Let me tell you what you actually did. The individual with asthma doesn't say, I have asthma. Can you meet down here with me? The individual that has really bad anxiety and doesn't want to walk up that hallway to go up those stairs to go meet with that faculty member or that staff member, they no longer have to say why. Those kind of things now you have also accommodated by redesigning your process because it was never the individual in the wheelchair. It was the design of the process itself. And if we can get people to start to think about those things, we can start to a little bit start to unpack it was I don't want to oversell it, right? It's like any other. Mm -hmm. We're going to always be working on it. But that's a little bit of how I conceptualize ableism. And it's really putting the emphasis on the environment. Uh, and it would be the Cornell construct, it would be the negative attitudes, those kind of things. And I hear you saying a lot too, in what you talked about, it's just being intentional, right? With our words, with our actions, and to actually think about serving the needs of everyone, regardless of their ability status, in the intentionality and design, say of like a session, or of a building, or something, right? And so I, I know for me, when I first became aware of ableism, and really the impact of it was, Years ago, I was facilitating the privilege walk activity and the walk itself, like somebody couldn't participate because they were legally blind. And I was like, uh, you know, I was a student at the time too, facilitating this. So I didn't necessarily know how to work around accommodating the session or this particular activity for this individual. And I realized like, how are we having an activity around privilege and calling it a walk for somebody who may not maybe necessarily be able to see and engage in this activity. Like, how are we being inclusive, but yet this activity is supposed to be inclusive? Like, it just felt so contradictory to me. And so, I, you know, I've definitely learned a lot and continue to learn since then about just the importance of being intentional with your words and with the actions and with the design process of anything that you do. And, and when I think about that, even what you alluded to with the transcript earlier, right? The transcript now gives access to this podcast to individuals that can't hear. Uh, I think also what's important too is from an intentionality standpoint, uh, what I do appreciate, there's times where it's people in your role, right? The, the two of you that talk about diversity and those kind of things, but really don't ever bring ableists to the conversation. Even most of our chief diversity officers in most spaces don't bring ableism to the conversation. And what does that actually mean? And how does that play out? Why do you think that is? I think it might be, it depends on the avenue in which people engage and connect with their personal experience, their mental models, their lived experience. I think sometimes when you turn to individuals that do diversity work, sometimes they have black and brown skin. There's a devaluing of the disabled community and the black and brown communities. And part of that devaluing comes from that historical context I told you about a little bit. Also understanding that the social construct of the disabled community sometimes is devalued as, as a whole. And so that plays a factor. I think also there's times where when individuals look like some of us in this space, black and brown, they, in, they tend to diagnose in a certain way. And sometimes that tend to have a paper trail on others. And so those things are at play, not that we do anything like that here at Cornell, we're not sending no paper trail or anything like that. But I think all of those things are part of this context and at play when we're talking about this. And so that's why the intersectionality 
is so important and that oppression and keeping that isms on the back of things brings the conversation to the forefront. Uh, I'll just say this, and I probably know there's another question, but I even think about ableism from a productivity standpoint. Mm. Talking about how does it play out, right? Like in our country, in our world, it's all about productivity. We also fetishize students that take a lot of credit hours at once, leaders of organizations and those kind of things. And so when we're talking about ableism, how it plays out, connected, right? Intersectionality, productivity, culture, Ivy League institution. Yeah, I was just going to say that. And so now when all of that is together, the social construct of what I described with the intersectionality, now that Black woman that we talked about seems lazy, right? Mm-hmm. Right? You see how that plays out from an intersect, not understanding all these social constructs that are at play that might not be giving this individual access and opportunity. And so because that individual doesn't want to stay in the lab to two in the morning and get back and go in the lab because the harassment or what might be going on in such a way and devaluing her with all of those three identities, right? In her condition alone, might not allow that individual, right? To stay up that amount of time without taking the medication or without getting the appropriate rest to be able to do the things they can do to be back in the lab the next day. So now my productivity, right? Mm-hmm. Now I look, right? I don't cut the mustard. It's not this, it's not that, right? Which is really, really important. I'll say this too, let's tag on to all that stuff that happened to the lab. And now you got to show up for a networking event. Think about what the disabled community is going through. And there's this thing called the spoon theory. And the spoon theory has you processing and saying, what if all three of us needed 10 spoons a day? And for me to shower and get to my 8 a.m., it took me two spoons. It took one of you three spoons and it took one of you eight spoons. And we all got to our 8 a.m. meeting. The person that it took eight spoons, they only got two more spoons for the rest of the day. I might have eight more spoons for the rest of the day. Not that I didn't show up to my 8 a.m. and I don't care. I only got two spoons for the rest of the day. And that's how you can think about that sometimes with anxiety, mental health. You can think about that with chronic illness, chronic pain, those kind of things. That might be manifesting from an ableist standpoint when you connect them to productivity, networking, right? It might take a lot of energy for somebody to do this interview that we're doing now. And then if they get off and have to then go to another call and then have to be on then go to the networking, you might wonder why they're not showing up for that. It might be some reasons that we're never really looking at, but that whole process somewhat is ableist because you're devalued by not engaging from a productivity standpoint throughout all of that. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but it's just trying to really bring this to light and what it actually uh, looks like from an engagement standpoint in these spaces around ableism. Are you able to talk about how that impacts people, right? So when you mentioned being devalued, how does that impact them? I'll answer from this standpoint. I won't tell those individuals to be resilient. I won't tell those individuals to have grit. I won't tell a disabled person who doesn't have access to have grit. I won't tell a woman to go back in this misogynistic environment and have grit. Mm. I will be honest about the environment so then they can learn how to navigate the space that they're actually in so they can have access and opportunity to participate fully. Um, And that's kind of how I would handle that is putting that emphasis back on the environment. There's gonna be times where we put accommodations in place and we're not gonna know if those accommodations actually work if the student is coming back saying this doesn't work. 
And so now when we talk about some of those stories that we alluded to earlier with intersectionality and those identities, it might be some of those things that are at play that's in that environmental context. And that's where I might need to be looking at to truly figure out how to accommodate this individual. And so when we talked about productivity a little bit, maybe if that individual condition is manifesting in such a way, they cannot be productive in the time that they need to in their lab. As an accommodation, do we find different times for that person to be able to engage in that lab in such a way where it mitigates some of those other barriers that might be at play because of the environment context itself? And that's where, to your point, you know, not going to tell them to be resilient, going to engage in such a way and see what accommodations might be appropriate for that individual. But really trying to get to a place of trying to do the work from a civil rights standpoint, it's their right to have access. They just have to come through my office to receive it. So I want to make sure I'm not overly doing that process and making it bureaucratic for them to prove that they're disabled. We're not here to play that game. Mm -hmm. And from a social justice standpoint, right? And that's why the environment context is so important. Zebediah, another word that I just realized oftentimes comes with a negative connotation is the word accommodation. Like if you have to make an accommodation for someone, if somebody requests it of them, it's often seen with this sense of negativity. Like I have to go out of my way to accommodate to a person or to a group. So can we like debunk that or just kind of process that a little bit of accommodations? Like that's not necessarily the case, right? Because if we're talking about intentionality and design and everything, then yeah, I'll let you take over. (laughs) I appreciate that. The first thing I would say, it might be the design itself. Or your design could be well-intentioned and you still might need to find a reason to accommodate. When I think about what we're doing right now, COVID made Zoom accommodate us. Neither one of us said we were disabled, so we need to record this in a Zoom setting. If you go to a hotel right now, they're worried about how can they accommodate your needs. You use your cell phone, and I talked to you earlier today, right, if we're being frank. Our cell phones accommodated us to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not until you put disabled or somebody needs accommodation because of their disability that accommodations all sudden becomes bad. Mm-hmm. Everything that we do in our work, we're trying to accommodate people. So dispelling accommodation itself, I think is highly important. I think when you're talking about in the context of the work that I do, we're at an institution of higher ed. You should want students to have access and opportunity to showcase their talent, skill set, and participate in the educational experience. And so when I think about accommodation, I think about the value add. I think about the differences within people, how we all have differences. If you were to play on the sports team, your coach would try to put you in the position where your best skill set shows and your talent. When you're working with your boss and your supervisor, they should put you in spaces to not necessarily don't work on the things that you might need help on, but things that you're really gifted and talented in, and let's showcase those things. I think it's very similar with the disabled community, understanding the value add. I know that I play college basketball and I coach college basketball. One of our managers was autistic and he had a photographic memory. And when we go to halftime and try to dissect the play, He knew exactly the play they ran and can tell us. And we'll go back and look at the film and he can tell us verbatim. He had a photographic memory. It had nothing to do with coaching ability. It had to do with he could explain exactly what that play looked like. So in that moment, as the coach, I was assistant coach and as our head coach and the other coaches, they had to be willing, intentional. We know that that's a skill set because we see what he's doing and telling us every day in practice before we get to the film. 
do I have enough courage as the leader to step aside and put that disabled individual in that space to shine, right? And I wanna say this as we're having this conversation, I'm not saying autistic is disabled, right? Because some people don't look at that one in the same. So I wanna unpack that as well, but just trying to be at, from an at-large conversation, right? How do we put people in positions to be able to utilize their ability to help advance what we are doing in our world? Similar to Einstein, they had to get out of his way so he can produce some of the things that we probably utilize today and inform what we do. So it's, it's that kind of stuff that I think about when it comes to accommodation is that it's never a bad thing until somebody's starting to devalue it from a negative cultural attitude of disabled people or giving somebody access and opportunity. I think that also shows up to women sometimes. I think it shows up to our black and brown bodies at times. It's all about that oppression. So then that naturally brings us to the next question, which is how can staff and faculty serve as better advocates or practice allyship for our disability community here at Cornell? I think like other communities allowing those individuals that identify within that community to have space and time, understand the value add. When we're talking about individuals that we need in leadership to be problem solvers, right? Think about a disabled person that when they're showing up, most of the time they don't have access and they got to figure out how to navigate and problem solve to engage with the community. The value add of giving disabled people the ability to lead, to problem solve, to redesign, to rethink, to reconceptualize how we do our work. I think that for me is the value add for staff to be able to go out and understand what that means. I think I would also connect it back to the identities and understanding who we are as people. Because if we don't understand who we are as people and how our identities are emerged in this microcosm of society within the social construct of Cornell and the hierarchy, I think we're gonna fail to see opportunities or where we can engage to give access. And how I talked about redesigning that process and allowing people to come, come down and meet with everybody. And now other people don't have to raise their hand and say, I have this condition and I need to be accommodated down here until we can slow down enough to think about those things, uh, it's gonna be tough. How we engage with each other from a, from a micro standpoint in our departments. Are we setting it up where individuals are not always put on the spot, but they have different ways to engage within a staff meeting? Or do you always have to speak out? Or can you send an email? How can we engage with this in a different kind of format? So then nobody has to say, I need an accommodation or I have anxiety or I don't want to speak up in this vein or I don't want to do this, that, and the third. How can we at the core of us think about how to give access and opportunity to individuals without them having to go to medical leaves to receive an accommodation or student disability services to receive accommodations? So on that note, Zebediah, I, I want to thank you for your time. I know you're super busy and you're, you're doing really great work. So I appreciate you as a colleague and just want to give you an opportunity also to maybe share a little bit about some of the services you might provide through SDS. We give such a multitude of services. How about I pivot in answering this way? If I had an opportunity to engage with all of the Cornell community, I would start with engaging a community within their process of engagement allowing disabled people to have opportunity to receive accommodations and access throughout the process. For example, if somebody needs to meet with one of you, how do they receive accommodations to meet with HR and go through that process? Not accommodations that they need to do their job, accommodations to even engage with the HR office. 
right? And so how do the academic advising put up on their website or put up somewhere that if you need accommodations to engage or the way that we're engaging doesn't give you access and opportunity, this is how you receive accommodations to even engage. I think about it from a simplistic standpoint, not that this is simplistic, so I don't want to talk out of turn, but take an individual that's deaf that needs an interpreter. If they don't know how to access an interpreter to engage with their advisor, they can't even engage with, right? Unless they find a different modality to do that. Now they could without an interpreter, maybe email back and forth, but it's that kind of stuff that you got to think about on the front end. And so if I don't see that I can receive accommodations to engage with my academic advisor or accommodations to engage with anybody, whatever offices, processes, procedure, that's why the environment is so important. I think it does a disservice to people. And I think that's where we got to start is start there that people can even receive accommodations to engage with all of us, any of us. And I think that's the start because I think we get so caught up in like in the classroom accommodations, we forget that if students need accommodations in the classroom to engage, they probably need accommodations to engage in other aspects of the educational experience. Mm -hmm. And so instead of talking about the service, if we can push people to put a process in place for people to know that accommodations is welcome to even engage with their office, that would be a good start. Zebediah, as we wrap up this episode, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners regarding this particular topic that you feel would be beneficial and informative to the entire community? One of the things I would like to talk about a little bit is how we alluded to a little bit of how do you engage accommodations on the front end of the process and things like that. I think one of the things that's been really unique is how we've been engaged in our Title IX office with our neurodiverse students. And when the hearings are a certain amount of time, how do you break it up? How do you get breaks? How do you actually have those meetings? How do you engage in those kind of things? When I think about the work that we're doing with Title IX, I think we're working and engaging a little bit with the JA office a little bit and other appeals and grievances process. When I think about that, I think about the transition to society in our community. And what does that mean for our black and brown disabled communities as they go through the court systems and the processes as they're trying to navigate those things, not only being black and brown, but also when you connect disabled to those situations and those kind of things, or if you connect neurodiversity into those spaces, what does that actually mean for those individuals? Could we, based off the institution that we are as a Cornell, start to incorporate some of the things that we're doing? I had the chance to sit with the chief of police here at Cornell CUPD to go over some things and the way that I was able to engage with him, I'm wondering how do we take some of those engagements, some of those engagements around some of the other stuff that we're doing and maybe help our community partners with some of the work that we're doing. And so I also think about it from that vintage point. Toral, is it just me or do I feel like I really took a lot of notes from this recording. I did too. What an amazing conversation we just had. Yeah, honestly, I think there were so many gems in this particular conversation that we could probably talk way longer than in this recap alone. But I do want to acknowledge and say that first and foremost, one of the things that I had been talking about in my inclusivity trainings, particularly around inclusive language and inclusive communication was around the use of people first language. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that this came up during our conversation. And I'm I'm sharing this in terms of being vulnerable, but also to hold myself accountable in that I shared some incorrect information during that training about people first language being inclusive and 
what's really apparent in this conversation was when talking about the disabled community, saying people with disabilities may not be the most inclusive. And so just from an accountability perspective, I want to own that and I want to name that. And so that way I know for future sessions that I do, particularly on inclusive communication, I'm able to particularly highlight the challenges around the use of people first language. And instead of saying people with disabilities, actually using the disabled community specifically. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I really was, it brought me to a greater awareness and to want to name that specifically on the show. So thank you, Zebediah, for that learning opportunity. And I just want to take that moment to acknowledge that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely a great point. For me, when Zebediah talked about that, I think it was really about the identity for individuals, right? And it's whatever identity they prefer for us yeah. to use. So that was kind of the key takeaway for me. Yeah, I agree too. And I think that's something that in terms of my own individual research, I've heard a lot of people, particularly the disabled community, use disabled people or they identify themselves as disabled right. and, and would prefer to be called that rather than a person with a disability. But the way Zebediah broke it down for me made a lot of sense around this separation piece and wanting to really just acknowledge that if a person does have a disability and they want to be acknowledged for that disability, then respect that about their personal decision. Right, exactly. A quote that I want to share that Zebediah actually said that I really found very profound and it really kind of shifted how I viewed the rest of the conversation. He specifically said, a disabled person is not disabled unless their environment produces barriers that deny them opportunities. That's so true. That's so true, though. Yeah. Speaking about the identities, right? They don't, individuals might not consider themselves to be disabled. It's not about the individual. It's about the environment that's creating that for them. Exactly. So environment is kind of giving them that identity, not themselves. Yeah. I've really thought heavily on this, particularly because of the work I do specifically with programs. And as we talked about on the show, we now have transcripts for the show for this particular series, but how long did that take? And so the fact that I hadn't even accounted for that in the initial production of this show, it's kind of embarrassing. Honestly, personally, as somebody, as I said, who really champions inclusion and equity to not have thought about that beforehand. That's something that for me, that was consistent, a consistent theme throughout this entire interview was how do we intentionally think about these things? before somebody requests them, right? Before somebody with a disability says, hey, I actually need this accommodation. And specifically what he said about accommodation for me really resonated strong. So there is another quote towards the end of the interview where he said, accommodations are never a bad thing until someone is starting to devalue it from a negative cultural attitude of disabled people or giving someone access and opportunity, which for me really ties back strongly to the question we asked him initially around why he does this work and why he's passionate about it. And it's because he just said oppression, right? Like the fact that there are systems of oppression that exist and that they impact not just disabled people, but also people with other historically marginalized identities is really powerful. And I think it just speaks so profoundly to the impact of his words personally, but also just the importance of this conversation and this topic around we need to talk about disability from a critical lens, but also from an intersectional one. Yeah, and I agree. And to tying into that, it's this concept of being intentional, right? You just mentioned it. You said it at the beginning that we all have to be intentional. And then there's something else that he said that, you know, I know that it was like humorous, 
but it was also meaningful. And he said that it's this concept of giving access to something that people should already have had and then patting ourselves on the back for doing it, right? Like, oh, like, hey, I gave this person access to this you know, event or whatever it is. And then say, I did a great job when in reality, I should have created that event. So everybody had equal access to begin with. So it's not something to pat myself on the back about. So I thought that was really powerful as well. Yeah. If you are doing this work already around diversity or inclusion or equity, that should just be a part of that process. Correct. It's, it's again, going speaking to the intentional piece. Right. So let me ask you this, Toral. as we finish this particular episode, what action is there an action that you feel like you are definitely going to take away from what Zebediah shared that you're going to implement in your everyday yeah I think for me it's just being aware right and so it's just keeping that in the back of my mind you've heard me say this multiple times in terms of all diversity and inclusion related topics but this should just be part of just who we are and what we do and so it should just be a consideration just like we would consider logistics or budget you know for a specific event or something that's happening. And so just the accessibility piece should just be a natural consideration for that. And the other part is that we're not going to get it right all the time. And that's okay. But the goal here is to make sure that we're doing the work ahead of time so that somebody doesn't have to reveal their identity or their disability to actually ask us for the accommodation. We should just be thinking of that ourselves. Mm -hmm. How about you, Anthony? What are you going to do differently in terms of your trainings? I think in terms of my trainings, I've already actually been thinking about a specific action. But one of the things that I haven't really incorporated into my trainings, so I do most of my training, well, all of my trainings actually are virtual. And within Zoom, we have the ability to add a live transcript. So when I'm speaking, there are automatically subtitles that come out. Now, granted, they're not 100% accurate, but I haven't actually utilized this feature to the maximum when it comes to facilitating conversations with different groups and different units. So one specific action I definitely plan on doing is to just simply add it, even if nobody asks for it, so that people can at least see what I'm exactly saying, or if they can't understand a specific word that I'm saying. I know I've been told I have a Chicago accent. And so for some people, (laughs) they may not necessarily understand some of the things I say, or if they speak another language. So before anyone even asks me, one of the things I'm going to start doing now specifically is to just add the live transcript feature before I even speak in a training. And so that's one action and one specific thing I'm going to commit to doing after this conversation. There you are being intentional. So I think that's a great start. It's the little things that we can all do. And I just want to pose that same question to all of our listeners, too, to really sit back and reflect on what specific action will you do after listening to today's episode? Thanks for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, and inclusion at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Toral Patel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Workforce Diversity in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. We would like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks, Bert. Bert.